Well, to the art of communicating effectively with teenage boys, and my guest is the mother of four sons, a former teacher and counsellor who's become one of Australia's foremost parenting experts and self-described boy champion. Maggie Dent is the author of multiple books, the latest called From Boys to Men, and she's also host of the ABC podcast Parental as Anything. Maggie says that many parents are bewildered when their sweet, expressive 13-year-olds turn into monosyllabic 14-year-olds and getting any kind of dialogue going feels like getting blood out of a stone. The key, she says, is understanding how the brain changes during adolescence. Maggie is with us from Sydney. Hello, Maggie. Hi, Catherine. That was an Aussie band, wasn't it? Mental as anything? It was. It certainly was. What was the big hit? It's making its way into my brain. Yeah, okay. Good luck on that. I'm 65. (laughs) (laughs) It had one particular huge hit. Um, if you leave me, can I come too? I think that was it. That's, that's, I think yeah, that that's was a goodie. It. Yeah, yeah, I've yeah. certainly danced to it an awful lot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, look, let's talk about this time of life and, and parents feeling like sons just suddenly become a different species when they, when they hit the stage of adolescence. What are the ages when this can hit, Maggie? A little younger for some, a little older for others? Yeah, definitely. And also we know that the whole journey of puberty is actually starting a little earlier than it has. But girls often go in 18 months before boys. And that's why, you know, in our high school classrooms, um, you know, that 14-year-old boy, whoa, he is, he's a really interesting young lad to be able to teach because he doesn't even know why he's suddenly walking around the classroom, can't remember what day it is, is in the wrong class, left his backpack on the bus, can't believe why mum's nagging at him because he left the milk on the bench all night. So in other words, all of a sudden it can get into a, um, you know, a state that it clusters together. So the physical change combines with the brain change, hormonal surges of testosterone, which gives them a lot of energy. Plus the brain stops being as efficient at inhibiting poor choices. So we can now work out what that is, what's going on. And, and if we can understand it, Catherine, that no tween or teen boy wants to get out of bed and get into trouble for all the things I've just mentioned. He actually can't even believe he does some of the things he does. Then we can open up some more compassion for them. What percentage of the brain is left for um, rational (laughs) contemplative thought at this stage of life? Okay, so the prefrontal cortex is growing all the way through puberty for girls and boys. Um, What we do know is that it, it just grows in tiny incremental bits. And this is what really frustrates parents and teachers a lot because, um, you know, they're not very good at planning for the future. They're not very good at empathy or thinking how their actions impact others. They're not very good at organisation. All of these things are very gradual. And I'll tell you a little funny story. So one of my sons, my youngest one, who was doing at university doing physiotherapy when I was telling him about his prefrontal doesn't finish till late 20s, he said, I don't reckon that's right, Mum. Look at me, I'm studying and I'm doing really well and, you know. And he took a small bottle of ginger beer out of the uh, fridge. He shook it before he opened the lid. So you can imagine what happened. It went everywhere. And he just looked at me and said, well, parts of it maybe. <laughs> so, again, we're, we're working with an incomplete brain in a highly testosterone area um, with already poor memory and now even more poor organisation. No wonder so many of them are confused, and that stress often comes out in their yeah. physicality, unfortunately, because they're not very good at articulating those things. 
so it's not deliberate. The whole point and no. message of this is it's not a deliberate no. disobedience. They haven't suddenly become sullen, selfish shites. It's simply there's not a lot left over a lot of the time in the moment um, for peak performance and yeah, exactly. <laughs> decision-making. The brain pruning can also prune off the um, part of the speech centre in the brain. And this is where those articulate boys suddenly start grumbling. And I remember, you know, an English class of mine having a boy get up and do a three-minute oral where he just seriously made all these strange noises um, that nobody could understand what he said. And he actually thought he was actually nailing it because from where he was, he was exactly the same things were going on, but what was coming out wasn't. Now, when boys get laughed at, oh, my gosh, that seriously becomes a shame, which creates a rage because so many of our boys are still shamed a lot more as little boys. So when the, you know, that that's another thing to keep in mind, that the last thing they need is to be told to open their mouth when they thought they were. And in actual fact, it's their brain that's created the problem with speech, not a deliberate intention to all that. So you can see why they pull down masks you know, and try not to talk because every time they talk, there's a risk they can embarrass themselves. And I write a lot about what embarrassment happens for boys. So again, if we just need to understand it a little more, then we can kind of be able to walk alongside them a little better and help them. Two important things. One, it's not a deliberate disobedience. Number two, the way you react in a frustrating moment, the way you react matters. Let's talk a little bit more about the embarrassment or the ridiculing. When is that most um, egregious? When when others are around? What's what's happening with that sort of sense of self-esteem um, and, you know, sense of self at a time when the body's doing everything it's doing? Okay, so one of the key differences that we've found between girls and boys, and this is kind of all the way through, is that boys tend to need external events or experiences um, with which they measure themselves. And if they do good, then they give themselves self-worth. So in other words, an external thing. Rather than um, us females, we tend to be judging every single thing we do, every thought we have, every every action. We're continually internalising everything so if a boy is in and remember the biological drive during adolescence not only is more autonomy and independence it's a search for identity and it's a sense of belonging with our own age group so if a boy um, and this is where some of the silliness comes from in our classrooms and our, and the antics they get up to if they can make their mates laugh that really anchors them into belonging and it feeds a really serious thing and it also feeds their self-worth However, if the if he's made some sort of joke that doesn't go down well, or his you know and physicality, you know the the slapping, the groping, the grabbing around the neck, and all that sort of stuff, they often use the physicality as a way of showing connection. And if that goes wrong, and they get the opposite reaction, then that is a real threat to that sense of self worth. That often becomes embarrassment. That triggers anger, which of course anger is still probably the most accepted kind of um, emotion that boys are conditioned to feel is okay because vulnerability again is still seen as a form of weakness for many of our lovely boys. That physicality um, and look it's so hard now it's hard for teachers because you're paranoid about laying a finger on someone right but but certainly for fathers and for um, brothers and for friends, again, don't be doing the whole stop throwing each other around, shoving each other around, arresting or whatever. That's a really important 
bonding experience for them, even if they take out the rose bushes or whatever. Oh, totally. And also, um, you know, and I know even with younger boys, you know, if you've got two or three in a house, gosh, our house was like a gymnastics um, pavilion quite often. But if they want to jump on a brother from the top bunk, and we just think that's a deliberate act of, you know, violence, absolutely rarely was it. It was that looked like it was going to be fun. And the higher I jump, the more fun it might be. And, and that's exactly when we when we start you know, seeing it through that lens, where can they do it? We've stopped the rough and tumble in our in our schools a lot. And I know some New Zealand schools are really, are really keen at keeping it in place because it's not all bad. In actual fact, they can learn where that is too hard. I will need to pull back on that because when they did it to me, I realised it was a bit hard. So natural consequences that come from those physical experiences actually are teaching our boys a lecture uh, doesn't always, you know, we're making them wrong for something they did, hoping to connect, hoping to make people, your mates laugh, hoping to have fun. So that really is confusing for them. And then, of course, when we punish them for stuff like that, whoa, without that prefrontal, it can be really, really, and then they get frustrated and frustration comes out as anger as well. So, so many of them are just incredibly misunderstood. Tell me about the anger because some are prone and some aren't. Some are more inclined to just increasingly withdraw. So tell me about how the anger can express itself and how to kind of deconstruct what might have led to it. Okay, so we know that any intense emotion creates energy in the body. So we've got already highly um, surging of energy in our boys' bodies with the testosterone, which is another reason why they want to walk around your classroom or, you know, do suddenly backflips and while they're walking to another class or something because there's a part of them that knows that movement helps me keep my cortisol, my stress levels down. So, of course, that when I get threatened, and, of course, one of the things we're now able to show is the amygdala in boys is larger, which is that threat centre, Partly biologically, Catherine, because, of course, they were supposed to be the the ones in our um, communities that went and killed saber-toothed tigers and mammoths. So it's a little larger. So they, they actually are triggered even quicker than girls. And then with the testosterone and then anger, anger is often what comes out when they are embarrassed, when they are um, excluded, when they feel stupid, when they're angry at themselves. And, of course, that anger comes out and rather than always be words, it sometimes is, but usually it comes out in physicality. It's the shoving, it's the throwing the desk, it's whatever. And when we really get to understand, we can now show through neuroscience that what happens when girls get really fired up and angry, um, our limbic brain fires up and then our word centre yep. fires up. So we're quick with the words. A boy, it's the limbic centre followed by the body and quite a while later it can come up into the word centre. So again, boys get checked challenged to say what's going on when they've got no way of doing that and it, it, guess what it makes it all even worse and that body is just yearning to discharge it some way so we really have to work out ways of you know letting those boys in that moment go for a run around the oval I did that quite often with my testosterone boys um, just go for a run around the oval before we come in for English let's discharge some of the excess energy that might be there from lunch or whatever you're carrying um, so when we start to recognise that, you see why we need to get our boys outside more than ever and guess where they are. They're all stuck on those devices doing gaming in a, in a virtual world 
which isn't building those capacities to understand others and themselves even better. I really want to come back to that um, because we are having <laughs> mental health crises really with our young people, it seems. it's. I don't know that we fully been able to put the data next to it but anecdotally for boys and girls it's just frightening uh, how many quite serious um, experiences parents are are having and I want to look at some of what could be exacerbating that in our current environment but first let's talk about the communication because kids no matter how much they're pushing back no matter how much they're trying to do the separating at this age and stage, still want to know where boundaries are. They still want adults to give them some kind of a clue of how they're going. And if we're going to communicate well, you have a long and considered list of when not to attempt to do this, um, which doesn't leave much time. Straight after a feed, I think, is what all I could find. But let's talk about how you best open up a space or jump on a space to talk to your boy um, and when are the times this is probably not going to go very well <laughs> and it really there's some simple things again because um, boys often used to tell me miss oh, I just busted all the time you know I'm always in trouble what have I done wrong now because they do endlessly make poor choices with their physicality right through boyhood don't they so they, they're just waiting for the next lecture uh, the very first tip I say, then the point in time, just get used to um, connecting with your son without words. You know, you know that gentle punch on the arm occasionally, that ruffle of his hair, that tickle on his back. Or for me, I quite often deliberately stood on their toe or leaned on them while I was standing near me or sat on them in the couch. I didn't say I loved them um, as much because they were a bit those tough boys. But when I did that, they knew it. So when we've got a connection, we always need to work out how can I connect before I think of communication. So again, it's a really biggie. Those timing ones, again, I can't believe how often, and it's often frustrated mummies um, wanting to talk to a boy when he's just got out of bed in the morning. Now they take ages to pull around. And if they're hungry, that's a single focus. That's, you know, so that's why that after food's a biggie. If you can get the body moving, and this is why, you know, I was really lucky. I was a basketball tragic. So I always had backboards. I was always out shooting hoops that you can take a grumpy a grumpy boy will join you to shoot hoops as long as you don't talk for a while. <laughs> and then eventually they, the words will come. And that's why walking the dog, going for a run, you know, like getting them moving their bodies because, remember, it goes from that brain down to the body, then back up to the mouth. That's a really biggie. And I know there's a lot of parents now walking the dog with um, their teen son. Sometimes they go past Maccas, of course, and get hot chips, which doubles the chances of a really good conversation, you know? So we've got to look at those sorts of things and be respectful that unless your tone is okay, they're already left the house, right? They're so used to that tone that we have that's a disappointment tone or the angry tone or a, you know, what have I done wrong now tone, that if your tone isn't okay, they won't hear you even if you've done the other few things I've mentioned. So they're not as good at, like I said, verbal communication. They're quite good. Um, at reading nonverbal, and sometimes they misread nonverbal. So I can remember once I kicked my toe as I headed into my kitchen with some um, shopping, and the one of mine that was most fiery, that was pushing every boundary and, um, you know, giving me the hardest angst, he just looked up at me and went, well, what have I done wrong now? Right? He'd done nothing wrong, but he immediately assumed he had because, of course, he was the one I had to have lots of chats to. Your own 
tone is affected by your own uh, mood, which is why buy yourself some time. As you say, don't do this within 24 hours of a misdemeanor that happened in public. Don't do it within 24 hours of a kid having returned home from a sleepover or a school camp. I get that. Let them enjoy what they've just done before you come and crash on the party, right? Um, but also, you're a really interesting one, before you know the full facts or the full story, uh, that is a very interesting one again, because does this come back to a girl will fight back and say, no, you're wrong, that's not what happened, yada, yada, yada. A boy will just yep. feel like he has been unfairly attacked. Oh, and not only that, their their memories, anyone who has a young son will know their memories are pretty... <sighs> Not so good. We do know that the female brain has a much more effective organisation and, and a hippocampus for memory. So, of course, when you call him on something, um, you know, there's a chance uh, he has no idea what you're talking about. And there's this third space that I mentioned a little bit, and that's that regrouping that you touched on, Catherine, that when they come back from stuff, and remember schools for most boys are war zones. They've got to be on guard the whole time, not only in the social context, but trying to remember the right thing, you know, trying not to fart in class. And a lot of them have a poo that's due because they won't poo at school. Um, they pick up all sorts of things that are going on and, and, and attack themselves. So when they get home, it takes a while to regroup. Um, regroup. And a lot of we, we talk about that also with men, that they need a third space to get out of the single focus of school, which is I'm on guard all the time, to maybe stepping into the home environment, when in actual fact it is a safe place, sometimes the warring me steps into the home space because I haven't had a chance to regroup. And it's a really, really helpful thing for us to keep in mind that when they are, when they've regrouped, they often are ready, you know, for us to be able to take better care of them, be kind to them, have a chat to them. And quite often that's around bedtime. You know, when we're ready for bed, that's when your son might be lingering around in the kitchen, you know, and you, you've got to kind of look for what's their body language. If they're hanging around a bit, there's, yeah, there might be something, but we've got to kind of let them start. And when they start, they'll only give you a little bit of a conversation to see if you're really listening, to see if you're really present. And you've got to and seize that moment, up. even if it's inconvenient to, to you. That. Even if it's, yeah, yep. right, 11 o'clock, you want to be in bed. And that's when you lean like up against the fridge and just give him, give him your, your full space. Um, and and there are, sometimes there's different places in the house. I, there was one couch that kind of became a silent code a bit in our house that if you were on that couch, I might grab us a Milo and sit next to you. I'm curious about what you say about eye contact. Uh, again, it might be a bit of a female inclination to say, look at me, <laughs> look, look at me, look at me, look at me. I want to see that you're paying attention and I want to look into the whites of your eyes. But that's not always the easiest for a boy to, uh, way for a boy to talk to you. No, no. Once again, we can look back through, um, you know, traditional kinship communities and eyeballing is a, definitely a female, more female thing. And the eyeballing for a male means, man, you're, there is some serious trouble going on. So when we command that, <clears throat> we often trigger that amygdala again to feel threat. And they go into threat mode, which means they go into flight fight, which means they can't access their prefrontal, whatever there is in it anyway. So we talk about the 45 degrees or the 90 degrees. So I often suggest... You know, if, if you want that big conversation, see, on the couch, I sit beside my son, not looking at him. Same with my counselling. Whenever I had a boy to counsel, the chairs were moved around. Girls wanted eyeball to eyeball straight in front. I moved the boy's chair around so he kind of looked at the wall behind me or to the side. 
And that's why in the car, you may have your very best conversations with your sons. In actual fact, I'm having a lot of messages from mums who've changed some of the ways that they connect with their boys. Um, you know, they've been calling them by their former endearment when they were little. Um, and they've been kind of gesturing kindness and just backing off, stopping the nagging. And they've found these beautiful moments are happening in the car when boys are suddenly tumbling out with conversations that that mum has not had in three or four years. And the car is a beauty. So sometimes it's a good idea to pick all their mates up after a sporting event or something and drive the long way home because they forget you're in the car and before you know it, all their conversations <laughs> will update exactly what the heck's going on. Um, and you just keep driving the long, long way home. And and like I said, that you will be able to get more information there than possibly by direct interrogation. We talked about that short attention span and, and, and how much of the brain was available. Um, that's how you get the intel. Look, I did bring it up and we probably don't have time to go into detail. In fact, we don't have time to go into detail, Maggie, and I'm not sure how much it's, it's your specialty anyway, but are you concerned, just one or two of the emails we've had, um, are you concerned and are you seeing a rising issue with actual mental health concerns with boys beyond the um, you know, the challenges and the ups and downs that everyone goes through? Um, is it a subject we might return to perhaps? Yeah, definitely. Whether it's statistically, um, we do know intentional self-harm has increased um, both boys and girls, but they are struggling uh, in this incredibly nasty world. Um, and you've got to remember that they see all the worst possible things about humanity uh, on their phones. Um, and yes, they are accessing the sorts of pornography we'd never want any girl or boy to see that messes with their head in terms of um, domination and, and um, you know, being disrespectful to girls. So we've got a really big job um, about how we need to keep them as safe as possible but have those conversations around vulnerability is actually what we all need in terms of coming through a difficult time uh, mentally and we and, and there's beautiful stuff and I've seen some of the fantastic advertisements coming from your country around having better conversations but we're not in in Australia we've got you know sporting heroes now stepping up going yeah look I um you know I've struggled with anxiety for my whole life and I've struggled with this and so what we're doing is normalizing that we have patches in our life where we can struggle and that seeking help is actually now a form of courage, not a form of weakness. So it's part of the deconstructing of that traditional man box that said men need to be able to deal with their own stuff and be strong at all times. Well, you know, there are things in life that get everyone to their knees. And, and so those conversations and that education is a really big part of kind of why I wrote this book so that... Right parents could step into that place and know how to be able to have the conversations. I'd love you to come back again and we might focus on um, on that issue in particular and also just um, I've got a parent here with some with autistic spectrum and again um, communication with different kinds of uh, boys because they're not all exactly the same. I've also got someone saying that you're only shipping, the book's only shipping to Australia at the moment. Can people buy your book online here? No, it has. It's been shipped to New Zealand. Okay. Apparently, um, there is somewhere that you can definitely get it. Um, we'll find uh, out more. There's a, there's a heck yeah, of an issue at the moment with um, with backlogs on books, but thank you for that. And raising also, the, yeah. have the audio book and the e-book all ready to go. And it'll have that my accent. Fortunately, you'll understand it better than most Americans. So <laughs> thank you, Catherine. Come back again, Maggie. Me. Thank you, Maggie Dent.